Hey everybody, it's Matt. As we get ready to kick off this episode of Growing Greater, I invite you to join me and our team for a very special event. It's our annual Welcome to Greater Philadelphia gathering. This is one of Select Greater Philadelphia's signature events, where we welcome new and recently relocated organizations and leaders to our community. You'll enjoy great food and refreshments while connecting with our region's top academic, business, and civic leaders. This novel gathering, it provides all of us the chance to say welcome to the neighborhood to our new colleagues who have chosen to grow their businesses and careers in Greater Philadelphia. Our exclusive location for 2019, it's extra special. It's the new corporate headquarters for Entercom, the leading media and entertainment company of highly rated, award-winning radio stations, digital platforms, and live events, including this podcast. And the team at Entercom, they call Greater Philadelphia their home, too. This special gathering is made possible thanks to Comcast, TD Bank, Berkshire Hathaway Fox Roach Home Services, the H&K Group, and the Entercom and Radio.com teams. We're all set Thursday, November 19th at 5.30. It will be an evening filled with meaningful conversations and new friendships. Be sure to join us November 19th at 5.30 for our annual Welcome to Greater Philadelphia event. You need to register, chamberphl.com slash welcome19. That's chamberphl.com slash welcome19. Stories of economic growth, job creation, and business success from across the 11 county community of Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, here's Matt Gabry. Achieving personal and professional success, regardless of how we define that success, it doesn't come with a handbook or a set of instructions. In most cases, navigating our career path, especially for folks who are innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs, takes courage, desire, and a comfort with taking risks, and it's oftentimes driven by instinct. It also requires vision, you know, the ability to see things that others just don't yet quite see. And it also requires a skill to transform that vision from an idea to implementation. So I went to three high schools. I got kicked out of every one of them. That's Brian O'Neill, chairman, CEO, and founder of MLP Ventures. In some ways, Brian's path to success, it's unconventional. It was not a typical journey. In other ways, Brian's path to success is exactly the type of education that Brian needed that fit his style and his way of learning. And ultimately, his roll-up-the-sleeves and on-the-job training, it defined Brian as a person and as a professional. Today, Brian O'Neill is one of the most successful real estate developers in greater Philadelphia and in the country. And in more recent years, he has evolved into other business endeavors, and he has done it all with a focus on not just delivering for his investors and his employees and partners, but on helping others. The communities where his projects are located and those who are striving to improve their place in life. It's a reflection on his journey. Brian truly values the generosity of time and expertise that others provided him throughout his career, the relationships that he developed as a young entrepreneur, and he embraces his role today of helping others, just as he was helped and mentored by key influencers throughout his life. We talked with Brian in front of a live audience at one of his newest ventures, the Discovery Labs. 
He's reimagining a 200-acre, 1 million square foot space in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania as a fully integrated environment for big pharma, emerging biotech startups, high-tech companies, venture capitalists, and others who can all cohabitate under one roof. He's passionate about Philadelphia, and Brian is driven by his desire to further position greater Philadelphia on the national and global stage as the epicenter for life sciences R&D, and as a special place to live, work, learn, create, play, innovate, and raise a family. Here, Brian shares with us how his early life experiences with family and friends helped to shape who he is today. I was very blessed to grow up in Our Lady Lords Parish, which is West Philadelphia, 63rd and Lancaster, with the Cabries and hundreds of other families with a million kids. I went to Our Lady Lords School for seven and a half years. The half year is that the nuns decided that I was better off not in the school a few months before graduation. So I left early and I had the privilege of photographing my graduating class from the choir loft at Our Lady Lord's Church. But it was a, That's great. a fabulous place to grow up. And I attribute a lot of what, you know, has contributed to our success today to the diverse nature of that community. You know, we grew up and it was 30% African-American and 30% Eastern European and Italian, where the parents actually spoke the native language and 30% Irish and 10% everything else. And we all got along and spent the night at each other's houses and knew each other's mothers and fathers. And, and so there was no such thing as prejudice because we were all part of the same community. And it was really a beautiful microcosm of the United States. And I think that having that sort of unbiased view of life has helped us to explore areas that maybe others might not because of biases that they created for themselves along the way. Totally. And it clearly, Brian, has shaped who you are today, you know, in direct ways and probably some indirect ways and probably ways that, you know, you've really identified this, that it's, it's shaped you. Not everybody necessarily reflects on their early childhood and says, this has impacted me in such a profound way. Yep. Share with us a little bit more about your journey. So you go to high school, you're working lots of different jobs as part of a family enterprise, if you will. Yep. How did that inspire you to then head on this journey? And what did you decide to do? I mean, did you know what you wanted to do? So I went to three high schools. I got kicked out of every one of them. And back when I went to high school, you had people who could conform and everybody else. And there was no place for people who learned differently or thought differently. My father was in the bar business, so we had a bunch of bars. He had a a station wagon. We would drive through the streets of Overbrook, pick up all the kids over the weekend. They all worked for us. But, you know, I would close one of his bars and restaurants at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night and go to school on a Wednesday. Right. And, you know, I was a waiter and a manager and a bartender, so I always had cash in my pocket. And I'd be listening to a teacher teaching me something that I felt was irrelevant at the time. Right. Or, quite frankly, and, and more than likely, struggling with And I was an arrogant young kid and kind of rebellious. And I would uh, tell the teachers that I didn't do well in that test because I didn't care about what they were teaching us. And they really didn't appreciate that. So uh, one by one, each of those schools, again, asked me to find another place to get educated, which I did. And finally, junior year, I gave up and said, you know, school's not for me. Right. And I started a painting company in Manioc. I had a Saab station wagon, uh, which I paid $50 for. My wife today was my girlfriend then. She called it the Flintstone car because it had no floorboards. And uh, (laughs) 
and you had to keep your feet up on the dash, and you could actually see the street going by underneath. But anyway, you know, I started buying houses in Maniunk for like $2,000, literally, painting them and selling them for $99.95, and I thought I was a genius. You know, those houses today are worth four or $500,000, but I got very interested in the real estate business, and what's so great about real estate is... If you can produce, it doesn't matter what your education is. It's a very inclusive industry, and it can take you into so many different directions. And, you know, I look at everything I have today has at one time or another had a real estate component. And the other thing it is, which is really interesting, and I try and teach others in other industries, is real estate is an industry where competitors are friends. Right. And you succeed by getting along with your competitors. You win some business, you lose some business, but you try to help each other because these are complex transactions and they're ones that need everybody's brain power. And so I found that to be kind of like Overbrook, where all the families got together. You went to every wedding and funeral. Real estate, same way. In fact, we have a dinner with all my top competitors in Philadelphia. Every top real estate guy in Philadelphia goes to this dinner once a quarter, and one of us will treat at an interesting place. And we are killing each other during the day competitively, but we're getting to know each other's families and having a friendship at night. So I felt very accepted in that business. And nice. What great camaraderie as well. And to your point, it's, it takes it's phenomenal. you back to family and friends that you feel comfortable with. Yep, yeah. exactly. Brian, I want to come back to something that caught my ear. Junior in high school, it was a milestone moment for you to say, yeah. I'm going to shift gears yeah. and I'm going to do this on my own. Yep. How much of a risk did you recognize that to be at the time? And what was the reaction from mom and dad and family? So my father was a tough guy, but he was a busy guy. So it was half extraordinary parental toughness, Mm -hmm. but half he was busy. So I called it stick and jab. You know, he'd be really mad for three hours after the event, but then he'd be off doing what he had to do. He worked 100 hours a week. My mother was incredibly positive. She held two to three jobs for my entire childhood and, you know, would run home, put fish sticks in the oven, feed the kids, go out and work at night. Yeah. She got up at three, four o'clock in the morning every day, read positive mental attitude books, made us read them, mm-hmm. would get us up at four o'clock in the morning, make us read a book, run around the block. And then she'd say, now you can go back to bed. Of course, you wouldn't want to do that. And she never once criticized my academic failures because she saw a glimmer of hope. And so she said, you know, after we got kicked out of third school, she was there that day. And she's like, all right, what are you going to go do? So I had had a summer painting company. I really had no risk when you think about it, because, you know, when you're in the sewer, yeah, you can only go up. So I figured, you know, I'll make a go of it. And I quickly realized that I could make a hell of a lot more money buying and selling houses. And I was very frugal and I doubled down. Every time I made money, I doubled down and bought more. And then uh, I realized that the guys that were making the big money were in commercial real estate. Mm. So I interviewed around town. But I didn't have a high school diploma or a college diploma, and that was a requirement at all those big firms. I hung out in the waiting room of CBRE for 60 days every day, hmm. and finally they hired me in the data bank, you know, getting coffee and putting information in a computer. And while I was in there, I started selling real estate. Yeah. And then I became one of their top producers, so they had to make me a sales guy. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how I made the transition into bigger real estate. Yeah, I love that tenacity of hanging out at the CBRE office until they paid attention to you. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, I wanted to make the kind of money they were making back then. And I'll yeah. never forget, the goal was $100,000. Right. I'd heard that brokers were making $100,000. This was in 1980. Right. Which is a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money today, but it was a lot of money back then. And I just thought, gee, if I could make 100000 I could retire. Yeah. I mean, life's all relative, right? Right. And, and so my goal was get that job 
get in there. And plus, I'd see these signs on these magnificently large buildings, and I just found it so interesting that a, a young person could control the economic fate of a high-rise building in Center City, Philadelphia, or an industrial building out in a park. And yeah. I thought the challenge and the adventure of that would be great. Yeah. And it has been great. It's, you know, I love what I do every day. I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So That's great. I'm going to get a little nuanced on you, and I hope I don't put you on the spot with this question. Yep. You referenced it a moment ago. Do you remember that house in Conshohocken that you purchased? Do you know the address? Do you know where it is? Do oh, yeah. No, was, the first one I bought was, I want to say it was 82 Green Lane, Maniunk. Maniunk. And I remember I could tell you every inch of the inside, every molding, every wire, every bit of that property. And it was next to a funeral home, Strip Matter Funeral Home, across from the North Lights Boys Club. Mm-hmm. And that was a beautiful house. And I actually lived in it. I lived in it with six guys. So my first house was a home. And then I just started buying all the neighborhood houses around it. And I had a local corner boy, you know, in Philadelphia, it's a series of corner boys. You know what I'm talking about. We had 10 corners in Overbrook, who was a hustler. So I told him I'd give him 100 bucks every time he found a house. And most of the houses came up when people died. Right. And so he'd call me up. He'd say, you know, Mrs. Smith is dying. That house is coming up. And I'd say, Franny, you make damn well sure I get it before somebody else does and you know he'd be sitting at the funeral home talking to the family unbeknownst to me right and and that's how we were able to pick up a lot of those houses but you know it was fascinating at that time most of the residents in maniunk had never crossed the schuylkill river Hmm. ever into bout kinwood right they were self-contained in maniunk and you know they fished in the schuylkill Mm -hmm. they worked at the old plants that were there it was a mill town and we were down the hill there's a pecking order I forget what the cross street is, but if you were down the hill, that was the lower class section of Maniunk back right. then. And it had a stigma attached to it. And if you were up the hill, you know, that was the nicer part of Maniunk. And if you moved to Roxborough, that was the suburbs. So the yeah. idea was a vertically integrated social caste system, and you would just work your way up the hill. But yeah. nobody ever thought about crossing the river. Right. And so my goal was cross the river and get a house in Bout Kenwood and get on to the main line and work my way up. Because I would drive around and look at the house and say, wow, someday I'd love to yeah. have one of those houses. And so, you know, I had a very different view yeah. than some of the folks in Maniunk. And I think that vision you had at 82 Green Lane in Maniunk has come to fruition. Yes. Okay. Well, you know, we've had some setbacks. 2008 was a very difficult year right. for our company. We lost hundreds of millions of dollars, and as did the rest of the country. So after 30 years of hard work and never having to work again, I had to double down. But, you know, it taught me a lot. It refocused my attention on where I really wanted to spend my time. I think now we invest with a much higher purpose. We're actually saving lives and changing the world with the investments that we make, where before we were doing cool stuff, but it was more, you know, economically driven and less purpose driven. Right. But all in all, I could not be happier. I've been with the same girl for 42 years. Yeah. And we married 35 of those 42 years. We've got five great kids. That's great. Thank you. And What's her name, Brian? Uh, Miriam. St. Miriam? You know, can I tell you something? <laughs> there is no doubt in my mind that she's got an express pass, a cellar train right to heaven. Yeah, totally. She tells me that I'm not a box of chocolates all the time. And, <laughs> and when I'm, I'm out of hand, she calls me a peach. You know, you're a real peach. But she's been my most loyal supporter forever. Yeah. And a great motivator for me. That's very great. different. You know, two advanced degrees. Yeah. You know, Murray Mercy, 4.0, yeah. Villanova, yeah. partial scholarship, just an incredible human being. Beautiful, funny, nice, great mom, great partner, extremely smart. And so she has really 
through thick and thin. Yeah. You know, been a great sounding board and supporter. So that really changed my life more than anything. So maybe you just touched on this. Is there a key influencer in your life that you really credit with helping to shape the path that you've You know, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. So I have had a number of great mentors. When I got to CBRE, I started selling buildings to actually a manufacturer from Maniac, a guy named Ira Ingerman. And they had secured exclusive production rights for all JCPenney's store fixtures. And JCPenney was doing a nationwide remodel. And the way they got it is that JCPenney went to all their vendors and said, we want you to drop our competition and only work for us. There were 100 vendors in the room. 99 said no. He said yes. And then he set up a parking lot in Maniunk, and he bought from all those same vendors, brought it to his parking lot, put it in his trucks, and shipped it to JCPenney. So the guy was making a fortune. Yeah in the 70s. And he was a CPA. He had incredible legal knowledge. He was a deal maker. And I started selling him buildings. So, you know, about a year in, he said, let's go start a company. So we started Equivest Realty Advisors. And we were buying high-rise buildings in Philadelphia and renovating them and doing historic tax credits and leasing them. And, And we had terrific success. But this guy was a genius. For example, he did math backward and forward in his head, which is a practice I, to today, practice. I don't bring calculators or computers. I run spreadsheets in my head. Yeah. I actually challenge these young Wharton geniuses that work for me to see if they can touch that you know, keypad faster than I can calculate in my head. Right. But he was also a legal genius. He understood contracts, negotiations, finance. And so I sat by his side as we built that company. Yeah. And I just absorbed everything. And he introduced me to the best lawyers in Philadelphia and the best bankers. And so I went from being the guy driving the Flintstone car to somebody, you know, borrowing $30 million and building buildings downtown, mostly because of his credibility. Yeah. And we became very close friends. And the other thing I noticed about him, we could be in a grueling meeting. And one day we had a union challenge. And so his son called and his son was, you know, maybe nine years old. And he said, excuse me, gentlemen, I have to take this call. And he walked outside and he spoke to his son for a half an hour and then went back in the meeting. Mm-hmm. And it just left an incredible message. I watched him do that a hundred times a month with his wife, his son, his family came first. Mm-hmm. So here was this very powerful, very successful guy, but had extreme ethics and morals and a great family background. Then I had a, another mentor, a guy named Eustace Wolfington, who I, between jobs, went to New York before I started the company, literally slept in a car, worked in a car dealership, and he taught me sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. And both those guys took me under their wings and basically enjoyed teaching me how they succeeded. And I was a very hard worker, and it was a two-way street I gave back with yeah. production. Yeah. So I would say those two were outside my father and my mother, the sure. most influential people in my life. So. What, what a great impact they had on your life exactly. and, and the lessons that they learned. And to your point, you embraced it. Yeah. You really were the sponge to the knowledge that they were willing to share with you. And that leads me to my next question, and then I want to learn more about your vision for the Discovery Labs. When did you know that the path you were on was the right path, that it kind of clicked for you? Or did that not necessarily happen until down the road, or it happened and you didn't even recognize that it happened? So I've been happy at every stage of my career. My life is fairly simple. I mean, my business life is complicated and complex. Sure. But if you look at my global life, I have a family I love where I spend... 99% 99% of my time. 
I literally have my friends from grade school. Greg DiStefano at yeah. uh, Victor, Victor Cafe. Cafe. Absolutely. You know, Sherwood yeah. Avenue in Overbrook is one of my closest friends. Yeah. And, you know, Scott and Craig Allshafer. And then I have, you know, just a handful of terrific friends. I have a very limited personal life, not because... I couldn't have a more active personal life, but because Miriam and I chose to be around for our kids. Right. It's, it's actually an interesting time for me because our kids have now moved out. So I'm an empty nester. And Imagine we, what it's like for Miriam. Well, exactly. Well, you know, <laughs> she's actually busier than I am. I have to make an appointment to get a dinner date with her. So my life is simple, and therefore my expectations were met at every level. Nice. I never felt... You know, when I was in Maniunk scraping together dollars to buy gallons of paint, that I was unsuccessful. At that time in my life, that was a very successful time. And at every step, I felt satisfied and energized to get up in the morning. So therefore, everything that goes beyond that is a bonus. So I think now, you know, I'm looking at sort of the, I'm 60 years old and I'm saying, okay, I'm going to really charge full speed for five years. At 65, I don't want to be putting in the kind of hours I'm putting in now. Sure. I start my day at 4 a.m. today. But today, I'm loving every minute. So what dent on the planet can we make that's meaningful during that period of time? Right. So I never feel like I'm on the right track or that I made it or, you know, I've just never had that. Right. You're not done. I'm not done. Yeah. But I do believe now that there are a limited number of things that we're doing that I want to check those boxes. Right. Sure, that makes sense. And we'll dive into that part of it a little bit more, too. But let's transition to what I would really call your ability to see things that others may not necessarily see. The vision that you have for a building, a field, a site, an idea, and how to take it from concept to reality. Talk with us a little bit about where we are today, the Discovery Labs. How do you describe it, and what is your vision for the Discovery Labs? So... I was a tough student because I learned differently. Mm -hmm. And in life today, they got all kinds of programs for people who learn differently. Mm -hmm. But I read an article, you know, when I was like in freshman in high school that John Kennedy read a thousand words a minute. So I bought Evelyn Wood reading books. And what they teach you to do is to see an image as a painting and not read every individual word. And so I began practicing how to turn a page and read the whole page in one shot. Mm -hmm. And then if I need to, I'll go back and I'll go to a sentence. And I've always tried to do what I call EBA in everything we do. And that start at the end point and do an end back analysis and figure out the entire component parts that go into building whatever it is you're trying to build. So in a building, and there are a number of people on my team, Richini's in the audience, he and I meet all the time. We know if we start a building, just from years of experience, everything that goes into that building. Drew Wolfington, his his brother-in-law, has been Mm -hmm. with me forever. You know, we can sit down and we can map that whole thing out. You draw it on a piece of paper, hand it to the architect, and have them fill in the blanks. Right. And so when you're able to do that, it's transportable. And what I learned as I started buying companies, and I started buying companies by accident, by the way. I had some companies couldn't pay the rent. Mm-hmm. And so I go to them. I really like human beings. And so I like the guy. I didn't want to close them out. And I'd say, okay, well, can I own a little piece of your company? And I, you know, I didn't make a lot of money on those deals, but I would understand what they were doing. Right. And I began to realize that you could take that front-to-back process of building a building and apply it to a company. And that most corporate managers never see 
that whole process. They're stuck in whatever tactical thing they have to do from day to day. So I first started buying businesses and applying that methodology to businesses and then morphed into starting businesses Okay. and applied that. Over the years, we created a series of boxes that we needed to check. And the very first box is you got to make a list of the human capital you need. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I would bring the corner boy up that had no experience, and I'd say, oh, I'll teach that guy. And it was philanthropically right, right, but corporately disastrous. And now, you know, we're round peg, round hole. Mm-hmm. So we'll say, and I'll tell you about Discovery Labs in a minute, but we have that whole thing mapped out. We know yep. exactly where we're going, exactly what we're doing, exactly where the market opportunity is. But we've also now made a list of the component parts that go in, and the very first component part is human capital. And gotcha. so when we start a business, the first thing we make is a list of people we need to hire. Yeah. And we only want the very best. And most companies don't give equity. Mm-hmm. And so we offer an opportunity for equity. And so we start with that. And then we try and figure out breakpoints yep. in a business. So what does the customer base need and where is industry failing to deliver? And then we map out a process that solves for those breakpoints. And we literally start from the first time a customer thinks about doing business with a company to when they engage in the process of doing business to the transition of making that business meet their needs to when they become a customer and everything you supply all the way to the end and how we keep them as a customer forever. And we map out excruciating detail. I have a plaque at recovery centers that's 14 feet long. Wow. And I force my managers, every one of them, to participate in that process. Because then when you go to work in the morning, everybody is crystal clear Mm -hmm. on what you're going to be doing. And we have a philosophy, ask the next 50 questions. So you'll start with what you think that process is, but as you recruit experts and ask the next 50 questions, you realize you've got to twist and turn. Mm -hmm. And then we have a blueprint, just like a set of architectural plans for a building, then we execute the program. And so, you know, erasers are cheap, Changes are expensive. Yeah. And, you know, I like to spend 75% of my time planning and 25% of my time executing. It gets easy if you, if you do that yeah. up front. Yeah, and, and so adjusting that, as you need to, but hopefully not a lot because you did all the planning. Exactly. And it's the same as reading that page. Yeah. I see the page as a picture. We see the companies as a picture. And we can see that whole front-to-back picture yeah. before we start. It's a very logical and thoughtful process, and it seems to make a lot of sense. And yep. I think a lot of people might be intrigued to know how much time you and your team invest in this planning. But it makes sense because you wouldn't be as successful as you are if it wasn't for that discipline. Yeah, hours. And it's, I started that process because I never had any money. Right. I mean, I didn't have an education. I didn't have money, so I couldn't get in, you know, to the club, if you will. So, yeah. therefore, I had to be incredibly precise. Yeah in my execution. So speaking of execution, let's pivot to, you learn about this property, million square feet, Swedland Road. What did you first think and how did it evolve from there? Well, the first thing you have to realize is I started as a broker and I've never stopped being a person with that broker mentality. No building, no business is any good without customers. Mm -hmm. So I very precisely call on customers quarterly, monthly, and I've been calling on Jack Smith at Claxo for 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I could lease him space or buy a building, and I never got a single piece of business from him. Mm-hmm. And so I was driving up on a beautiful day, 
It's about three years ago, and talking to Rich Heaney on the phone. I said, you know, I'm going to call Jack and see what's up. And I called him. I said, Jack, you know, you want to sell the building? And my friend Ron Cariola is up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hit. It was like a perfect day. I called Ron. I called Jack. And they say, you know, Brian, it's funny you should ask. <laughs> Your timing is perfect. Right. We were just talking about it. And so uh, it was a very complex transaction. And, and I'm thankful to Ron and Jack and the whole team who were extraordinarily patient with us. I mean, the documents were foot and a half thick, mm-hmm. actually probably three and a half feet thick. The legal bills were millions of dollars, but it just was the right day. And Ron arranged for Jack to show me around, and we came over, and, and literally we said, you know, what do you want? They told us, and we agreed. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, you know, Ron came back to do his job and said, well, that was easy. Let me go see if I get another $10 million. We said no. And he said, all right, a deal's a deal. We told you we'd sell it to you for that price, and we'll honor it. Right. And they did honor it. It was a very complex transaction, but it was, it was genteel every step of the way. And we just knew that biotech was exploding. This is a billion-dollar facility. We paid considerably less than that to buy it. And Glaxo does everything perfectly. So you have this biotech therapeutic explosion going on in Philadelphia, and then you have all these companies going to Cambridge, Mm -hmm. which is something that infuriates me. I have a policy called Philly First in our company, and I guess I gave a speech to the KOP district, Mm -hmm. and the whole concept was Philly First, and we had great banner. We had Philly Magazine commentating. I just felt that this building was something special, and quite frankly, we didn't have the strategy fully figured out. Right. We just knew we were buying, you know, 20 pounds of good stuff for the price of five pounds. And, you know, in the end, we can make a lot of mistakes and it would be okay. And we decided that we were going to add a combination of being the tenant Mm -hmm. in addition to renting to the tenants. Gotcha. And so we began to realize that the real market opportunity was a severe shortage of CDMO, viral vector manufacturing, plasmid manufacturing, and specific cell and gene manufacturing in the industry. So, you know, we have this theory, ask the next 50 questions. And, you know, anybody comes to me in every meeting, and we have have 7 a.m. Monday morning meetings, 7 a.m. Thursday morning meetings, and the goal of those meetings is to put every one of our managers up and whatever topic they bring up, they know we're going to ask the next 50 questions. Yeah. And so early people will come in and they'll say, oh, gee, I didn't ask that question. Right. And everybody else in the room will go, oh, Uh-oh. you know. <laughs> so what we start doing is everybody starts digging in and asking questions. And so yeah. what we found out was not only was there severe shortage of manufacturing space, but there was sort of a major human injustice. So, mm-hmm. you know, these wonderful scientists like Carl June and Jim Wilson and others mm-hmm. in Philadelphia have come up with trials where seven of eight terminal cancer patients have lived. They've actually mm-hmm. sparked. Some of the guys from Spark are here. Yeah. They have one treatment and they cure blindness. It's just amazing, amazing stuff. It is. And there's many more coming through the pipeline. And with the current capacity in the international manufacturing market, we can handle 10 cell and gene companies. The FDA has said that they're going to fast track these companies. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't understand the cell and gene phenomena, for years we took a pill. The pill went into our digestive system and out through our bloodstream, touched everything, and hopefully solved the problem for a time being, a therapy. Right. Chemo, you lose your hair, you can't eat, destroy your insides, and maybe you retard the growth of that tumor for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Cell and gene therapy, remove the bad gene, inject a vector, which is a transmitter, attach some medicine and a plasmid, kickstart the whole process. 
put it back in the body and solve the problem. Right. Because it's directed at exactly precisely what the problem is. It's a monumental breakthrough in, you know, medical science equivalent to the Internet, if not greater than the Internet, because I would argue Mm -hmm. the Internet isn't saving lives. So right now we have about a fifth of the capacity we need with the current companies. Mm -hmm. There's 1,100 companies being fast-tracked. There's another 1,000 or so that have received, you know, A-round funding. And so this problem is going to exacerbate itself greatly. So we sat down with our team and we said, all right, we're going to supply the whole food chain Mm -hmm. for the biotech industry. We're going to create incubator space. So two scientists need to have a bench in a lab and get their company kickstarted. We got a home for them. They need some graduation space. We got a home for them also, but we're going to take 600,000 feet. We're going to spend about $780 million, including the investment in the company, and we're going to build the largest, you know, manufacturing plant geared to cell and gene therapy in the world. Mm-hmm. The next largest, 200,000. Next largest company is 200,000 feet. And we're going to build it here. So the first kind of reaction that I got, I'll never forget, I went to a meeting with a major corporate client. And they're explaining that, you know, they're missing numbers by 31% because they couldn't get viral vectors. And I said, <laughs> I got just a thing for you. I'm going to build the largest plant in the world right around the corner and solve your problem for you. And he turns to me and says, how are you going to do that? You need really smart people to do that. <laughs> so my first thing is, I guess you don't think I'm very smart. But then I said, I got an answer for you. I'm going to hire really smart people. Right. And I'm going to do what I got to do to get him. And not only really smart, but I'm going to hire the number one player in each of these categories. I'm going to give him a huge amount of equity mm-hmm. so that they can fulfill all their dreams, come to work knowing that they're an owner in the business. And we're going to go figure out how to solve this problem. Audrey Greenberg, who's in the audience, is one of the members of my team. And, you know, I call her Mrs. Doubtfire because she's a good sounding board. <laughs> I'll come up with an idea and she'll tell me the, uh, you know, the 52 reasons why. It's probably not going to work. And I'll say, well, just once, just go try it. And inevitably, like anything in life, you try it, it usually will work. Yep. But she's been a great champion, and we began to check off the people we needed. I told her, just run ads. Yeah. Just run ads. Just tell them, we'll pay whatever, come see us. Yep. And we've just been building a tremendous team. And so now we went up to New York. We made one presentation. We got the largest biotech investor in the world to not just come into the company, but the owner of the company and the president are in personally, and wow. their funds are in as well. Congratulations. And, That's yeah, well, great. Thank you. But what was most interesting about that, I mean, we're partners in a lot of different things, yep. is you know, we began to realize, like a minute into the conversation, that they have 450 companies, and Every one of those 450 companies are having this problem. Mm-hmm. So two things happened. One, we're solving their problem. And two, we got a customer. Right. And so their investment wasn't just because they think it's a great economic idea. They had been meeting continuously trying to solve that problem for themselves. Right. And, and the more we began to peel back the onion and look at this business, we realized that we were sitting on an absolute magical opportunity to change humanity. Brian offers priceless advice for people of all ages that can help deliver positive outcomes. And we'll be back in just a moment with those insights and so much more from Brian. First, I want to thank another iconic brand in our community, Ocean First Bank. As the largest community-based financial institution headquartered in central New Jersey, Ocean First Bank is poised for continued success as it expands in the greater Philadelphia market. 
having completed five whole bank acquisitions in less than four years, that exciting spirit of innovation, it continues to define the team at Ocean First. With a focus on meeting the needs of middle market clients across the Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania community, Ocean First provides commercial and residential financing solutions, wealth management, deposit services, and so much more. Check out all that Ocean First Bank has to offer by visiting OceanFirstBank.com. That's OceanFirstBank.com. Brian, you've had some great success. You hit some hurdles, as many organizations do, as many professionals do. You've evolved and you've adapted. And Recovery Centers of America is one of those initiatives that you have tapped into. And if you could, to complement the discussion about the Discovery Labs, talk with us a little bit more about your vision, your passion. You saw something that wasn't being fulfilled. You wanted to provide a solution that you thought was missing, and you invested in this vision called the Recovery Centers of America. Yeah, so you know we grew up in a neighborhood that was inundated with drugs and alcohol. You know, a lot of our early friends have passed away for a number of different reasons, and I just saw that happen time and time again. So I did an intervention on one of my tenants in my Manioc house Mm -hmm. in, like, 1980, and uh, his mother was a very well-known Philadelphia woman, and I saved his life by accident. I literally was checking on my building, and I found him laying in the threshold of the front door, and literally his body was cavitating. Yeah. And I called 911. They came, and we took him to Roxborough Hospital. They told me he wasn't going to live for half an hour. I actually got arrested because they thought I gave him the drugs, which Mm. fortunately my then-girlfriend, now-wife, was able to prove, in fact, I was with her and didn't give him the drugs. But we had this two-week vigil. He sat up Mm -hmm. like nothing happened. And I got him into the Karen Institute, which was Mm -hmm. then Chit Chat. And we got him clean and sober. And he's been my friend ever since. He actually texts me every single day. He had some relapses, and we got him back in over the years. But after his mother started telling people, my phone started ringing. And, you know, interventions are free. Yeah. And the rule is if you get a call Tuesday night, 8 o'clock, you just get in your car and you go do one. Right. You don't say I can't go because in that moment of time, it's an emergency. It's a medical emergency. So I started doing interventions for years, and I was incredibly frustrated that rehabs didn't return the phone call. The buildings were deplorable. The service was marginal at best. Mm -hmm. And I had a young kid, a friend of my son Julian's, that grew up in our house, Mm -hmm. got addicted to opioids. I did an intervention on him. It was like this 24-hour thing. And finally, we got him to one of the rehabs at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they wouldn't admit him until 8. Literally, the guy stood behind the glass window Mm -hmm. and wouldn't take him, even though we had paid for it, gotten it all approved. So we had this heroin-addicted kid running around you know, in the yard, and we're trying to tackle him and chase him and keep him for four hours. We get him checked in, and I go home, take a shower, go to work, and after not sleeping, and he talked to a woman, and they had a male-female separation. They threw him out. Hmm. Didn't tell me. Right. And so I get a call, a frantic call from his mother. I had to leave work, go get him back in. And I just, and I was working with a professional interventionist, a guy named Jay Utes at the time. I said, Jay, this business is horrible. I'm going to change the way everybody does business in this by mapping out a blueprint. And we sat there during the hours of the intervention, we mapped out this whole blueprint. And uh, I went to my wife and I said, look, hon, just worked our way out of the recession, got a few bucks sitting around. I'm going to put it all in black. We're going to start a rehab company. Nice. And like she always does, go ahead. It's worked right. in the past. Yeah. You got a pretty good batting average. I'm not yeah. going to worry about Let's it. make it work. Just, yeah. And so I went out and I hired the number one scientist in the world, a woman named Denny Carice who had advised the White House, the United Nations, and 30 different countries, was the chief scientific officer for the largest company in the world. 
and uh, I have a friend, Kevin Mullen, who helps me start businesses, and he's just a voracious cold caller, and he just called her morning, noon, and night. So mm-hmm. she said, look, I'll fly in 7 o'clock Sunday morning. I'll meet you at the Four Seasons. We realized she had an apartment in Philly. was a Philly girl, huh. but was working in Tucson, Arizona. And so we had six meetings, and I just kept pestering her. She's like, why would I come to work for you? You don't have a single hospital. Mm-hmm. So we went out, we tied up 10 hospitals, and we negotiated with a psychiatrist to buy a small place called Lighthouse in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Once I had that, I got her to come on board. And I, I think that we just wore it down. Yeah. Then I went to Universal Healthcare, and I found the head of their acute hospital division, a guy named J.P. Christen, who'd run a $4 billion hospital chain. And I convinced him to be the head of my operations. And he said to me, you know, Brian, in the interview, I'm used to working with very difficult people. Which I thought was, I didn't know if that was a compliment or what that was. But, uh, but anyway, he came on board and I lifted out a team of financial people. And we had all these hospitals tied up. And I was $10 million in mm-hmm. personally. And we were running out of money. And so we hired an investment banker and we started shopping Wall Street. And we made 10 presentations. We got 10 term sheets. We sold 33% of the company for $237 million to Deerfield, and who subsequently invested a total of $500 million in that business. And we went out and we started building ground-up hospitals. We created a $30 million IT backbone. We built a mission center. In the middle of our executive office is our mission center, where all the calls come in. And each of our executives, including myself, spend hours every week listening and talking to patients on the phone. And we went out like gangbusters, and immediately we started dominating the marketplace because we answered the phone in six seconds or less, put a car in the driveway in an hour or less, and had them checked in in two hours or less. We admitted 24-7. And so the business just took off. And, yeah, you know, we had some early challenges we overcame. and You're there for people. You're providing yeah. solutions. You're making it better. And I have two wrap-up questions sure. for you. The first is, where will the Discovery Labs be in the next three, five, ten years? So we've identified six markets we want to be in. We think that if you just do the math and you assume that we need five times more capacity globally than we have today, and that there are 100 times as many companies right now coming through the chute and another 100 times right behind them. And, and then a slew of companies don't even know about. The capacity needs of this industry is just off the charts incredible. So we want to be in Dublin, Ireland. We're looking at the UK. We're a little worried about Brexit. We're actually looking very closely at a property outside of Cambridge. Got a property on the West Coast that we've been mm-hmm. looking at. Actually, not on the coast, but in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. And so what we want to have is a series of graphically dispersed half a million square foot or larger Mm -hmm. Home Depots for biotech. For biotech. We are beginning to enter into joint venture discussions with universities because like recovery centers, recovery centers hires between 150 and 400 people every month. Wow. And we're going to need to hire thousands of employees here. We are out recruiting scientists, directors of manufacturing, mm-hmm. viral vector experts, people who have created them in the academic world. We actually made an offer on a company and are, are trying to buy a second company to get capability. And so we will have an equal collection of scientists mm-hmm. to Penn and Children's, but on the manufacturing side. Gotcha. And uh, because we need thousands of people to execute yeah. this strategy. So, you know, three years from now, we'll have probably the second or third under construction. This will be built and producing. Mm-hmm. We think we'll be the largest, and we are the largest at recovery centers mm-hmm. in what we do. And we're throwing more capital at it than anybody to date has done. And we've got the capital, and we've got the backing to do that. And we've got 
all Deerfield's business as well, and they're the largest, you know, investor in the field. Yep. So, you know, I think we'll be aligned with Penn and Children's. I met with Kevin Mahoney a couple of days ago, and I was on the phone with Maureen Hansberry this mm-hmm. morning prior to this meeting. We're going to try and do an alliance with Drexel to take their engineers yep. and Temple. We're going to try and convince St. Joe's and Villanova to create a biotech manufacturing specialty, do it here. And we've just, we've done that in our other business where we literally yeah. will take a whole class. And so we'll be absorbing people, creating jobs, building buildings, making drugs and eliminating that time gap between when the component parts are available and when the patients need it. So that's where we hope to be in three years. I love the spirit of collaboration because you know that's the secret to success. That's the game. You've got to work with others. And by the way, I learned it in real estate. Real estate guys do it better than anybody else. And other businesses are very siloed. And I think that if we can break those down and all cooperate, because for Penn and Children's and, and everything they're doing to succeed, they need me to succeed. And for right. me to succeed, I need them to succeed. So why not work together and figure out a way that's a win-win for all of us? So here's my wrap-up question, and it's pivoting back a little bit to the personal and the professional. There's a young person in this audience. There's someone who's listening to this podcast program. Yep. They're an entrepreneur. They may be in high school. They may be thinking about college or going to tech school, or maybe college isn't for them. What kind of advice do you give to a young person who's at that kind of crossroads in their career, whether they're 15 or 35? So I'll give you three things that I try and tell young people. First, if you take a child and you spend time, I have nieces and nephews and they're phenomenal kids. They'll ask you the next 50 questions Mm -hmm. and they'll pester you. Yeah, just naturally. As long as you let them because... Human beings at young ages need to learn to walk and talk and understand life, and so they're highly inquisitive. But they get into school in first grade, and the teacher you know, makes a statement, and a kid raises his hand and asks a question, and everybody laughs at him. Mm-hmm. In the back of his head, he says, I'm never going to ask another question. Mm-hmm. So rule number one, ask the next 50 questions on every topic you're interested in learning about. The second thing is you can't get ahead if you don't know how to advance your agenda. And you can't advance your agenda if you can't communicate. Mm-hmm. And communication is in the form of letters, emails, texts, PowerPoint presentations, Excel spreadsheets. You have mm-hmm. to communicate mathematically. You have to be able to make a presentation and communicate in a boardroom. You have to write succinct letters and emails and texts. And so the one thing that really drives me nuts, I'll get a Wharton kid. Parents spent, you know, 200 grand to put him through college. Yeah. And they're sending me D-da-do, you know, mm-hmm. uh, letters, you know, like half words mm-hmm. as if they're texting a friend on yeah. a Friday night. And I think you just, you got to throw that mentality out and you got to learn how to write a letter. Mm-hmm. You have to understand spreadsheets and basic math. I don't think you'd really need to know, you know, complex calculus and, you know, algebra and geometry, but you do need to know basic algebra, geometry, and math. And you need to understand what I call the belly button theory, which is what comes in, he must, what goes out, he is what you make, you're losing. Mm -hmm. You got to understand that. And that's Mm -hmm. what business is all about. They call it a P and an L. Mm -hmm. You know, what's your profit? What's your loss? And, Mm -hmm. you know, what's your revenue and your expenses? Yeah. And then the third thing I would say is you got to read like a crazy person. Yeah. You know, you have Google, it's out there, and everything you ever wanted to know. And I think that you have to read a combination of things. You have to read inspirational things. Mm-hmm. 
that are positive. I try and avoid all negative energy. Yeah. Negative people, toxic people, negative, horrific things. I don't want to watch six hours on Charlie Manson. It's pollute my brain. Right. I'd rather watch six hours on John F. Kennedy or Abraham Lincoln or people that solve complex problems. So I think you need to read inspiring things all the time. You need to associate with people that are going to help you advance your agenda because they're advancing your agenda and disassociate with people who are going to bring you down, even if you've known them your whole life. If they're hurting you, you've got to get them out of your life. Yep. And then I think you have to read technical subject matter in the things that you want to be proficient in. And, you know, I think anybody with any education or no education mm -hmm. can become the most proficient expert in a topic if they outread everybody else. Right. And all that information is available for free. And so if you use that same ask the next 50 questions on Google, for example, to just dig and search and find the answers to the questions that you have. Yeah. And then the last thing I would say is look for the obvious. Mm. It just is amazing to me how obvious business opportunities are. Like rehab. They don't answer a phone. The buildings are junk. Mm -hmm. They treat patients horribly. Let's do it better. And there are 26 million people not getting treated. Now that's a very obvious business opportunity. Discovery Labs. We have these wonderful scientists creating drugs that can save lives, but the people are going to die before the drugs get to market mm -hmm. because we can't make them. Right. So let's go make them. Right. And, I, and so I always say, look for the obvious. Yeah. The greatest ideas in life and the most successful people have made money, obviously. Right. They haven't made money because they found some nugget of treasure buried in an island in some faraway place. It was right in front of their face and they figured it out. As Brian noted, the research and innovations driven by experts right here in Greater Philadelphia, including those working at the Discovery Labs, they will likely transform the lives of people around the world in truly remarkable ways. And we'll bring you those stories and more right here on Growing Greater. And hey, if you like this episode, please be sure to rate and review our podcast and share it with friends and family and colleagues through social media too. Be sure to check out other inspiring episodes of Growing Greater at radio.com, wherever you get your podcast, or at selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast. As we wrap this episode, let's thank the team at Carroll Engineering. With nearly 100 professionals and more than 45 years of expertise, Carroll Engineering has earned their reputation as one of the largest consulting engineering firms in the greater Philadelphia region. The Carroll team consistently exceeds client expectations by being responsive, reliable, and professional while adapting to the evolving needs of their clients. With corporate headquarters in Bucks County, the Carroll team delivers a wide range of services, including water facilities engineering, planning and site design, landscape architecture, and so much more. Carroll Engineering is one of the preeminent partners in the civil and municipal engineering industry, and we at Select Greater Philadelphia, we're so appreciative of their support. Learn more at carrollengineering.com. That's carrollengineering.com. And join me in thanking Carroll Engineering for believing in us at Select Greater Philadelphia. Growing Greater is presented by Select Greater Philadelphia, a council of our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Select is the business attraction organization for Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania, and helps to grow the economic vibrancy of our collective community by attracting new businesses and new jobs to our region. Special thanks to our program producers, Elena Carmazin and Maricela Juarez. 
along with the great team of marketing and creative services professionals at our chamber. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in anytime and anywhere you get your podcasts or online at selectgreaterphl.com slash podcast. Podcast.